0: Hi, good yeah. afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Helix Center. My name is Jerry Hurwitz. I'm one of the <laughs> organizers here at Helix. And I want to make a little well, too brief introduction of our, to our moderator today. Anne-Marie Levine is herself an artist, painter, and poet. And she will moderate this uh, panel discussion and introduce you to our uh, distinguished panelist. So.
1: <laughs> okay, thank you. Whoa. Can you just... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mic issues? I, th- I think we're also... Whoops. i too much. I think we're also supposed to remind you that there's a conference on December 1st. The, oh, right? Do, I, I don't have the information. The SciArt. The Sci-Art conference, which you can see on the website. It's... it's Yeah. It's fully explained. Um, So today, we're we're going to attempt to tell you about American poetry today. It's only a beginning. Um, So to introduce the program, um, the American poet Ezra Pound proclaimed that poetry is news that stays news. On a different note, his contemporary William Carlos Williams said that it is difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. Do modernist maxims such as these also define the ever expanding range and diversity of poetry today? Which poets or groups are doing interesting or important work? Who are the earlier poets that inspired them? And what is the nature, role, appeal, and significance of contemporary poetry? When it comes to grasping experiences and communicating their meaning, what does this art form provide? What kinds of subjects do poetry journals and other publications focus on? How has the production, promotion, and reception of poetry changed in the Internet age? It's very much about the Internet age and the 21st century. Um, in response to questions such as these, a roundtable of diverse and accomplished poets will discuss what's going on in the poetry world today. They will explore the allure and value of contemporary poetry through different lenses, ranging from the formal to the linguistic to the conceptual to the psychological. And in the second part of the program, we'll have our usual Q&A. Um, I'm going to introduce the participants in alphabetical order and ask you each to raise your hands as I say your name so people will know who you are. Patricia Carlin... I received her Ph.D. from Princeton, focusing on Shakespeare studies in poetry and poetics. Her most recent poetry collection, Second Nature, appeared in May 2017. Previous books include Quantum Jitters and Original Green Poetry Collections and Shakespeare's Mortal Men, a study of Shakespeare's plays in their cultural context. She has published widely in journals and anthologies such as Playad, Verse, Boulevard, Bomb, American Letters and Commentary, and is this right, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, right? And she co edits the poetry journal Barrow Street. Honors include fellowships at the McDowell Colony and Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. She teaches literature and poetry writing at the New School, where she has received the University Distinguished Teaching Award. Mm-hmm. Can everybody hear me? Is this. No! <laughs> Slower. Okay. Amy Holman. Amy Holman is a Pushcart Prize-nominated poet and a literary consultant. Her collection, Wren's Fly Through This Opened Window, was described by one reviewer as part freak show, part searing insight. She's also the author of four poetry chapbooks, including the prize-winning Wait For Me, I'm Gone from Dream Horse Press. Her poems have appeared in numerous magazines and anthologies, too too numerous to name, including Archaeology Magazine, American Letters and Commentary, Barrow Street, Fail Better, I'll stop. Um, But I'll end with the first anthology of TV poems and the best American poetry 1999. She teaches poetry workshops at the Hudson Valley Writers' Center. Paolo Javier... Um, His collaboration with Listening Center, David Mason, appeared as a limited edition book cassette, whose name I cannot pronounce. You'll have to help me. Earlier. Okay. Published by Text and Tone in early 2017. A featured artist in MoMA PS1's 2015 Greater New York Show. He is the author of four full-length collections of poetry, including Court of the Dragon, which Publishers Weekly calls a linguistic time machine. A new chapbook, Maybe the Sweet Honey Pours, is coming, forthcoming from Nyon Editions. And last but not least, Stephen Massimilla is a poet, scholar, professor, and painter. He holds an MFA in writing and PhD in English and comparative literature with a focus on poetry from Columbia University. His new multi-genre volume, Cooking with the Muse, won the Eric Hoffer Book Award, uh, the National Indie Excellence Award, and others. His previous books include the award-winning poetry collections, The Plague Doctor in His Hull-Shaped Hat, 40 Floors from Yesterday, and later on, I, uh, um as well as translations of book-length works by Neruda, and A Critical Study of Myth in Modern Poetry. Massimilla has published recently in hundreds of journals and anthologies, again, the list is too long, Agni, American Lit- Literary Review, Barrow Street, Colorado Review, Denver Quarterly, po- Lower Poet Daily. He teaches literature and writing at Columbia University and the New School. Okay, that's it. Um, I guess I have to get my microphone back. And... Um, Go ahead. <laughs> okay? If it works, can you hear me? I'm not yes, going to talk much I can hear you.: Yes. Is this all right? Okay. Um, so I'm going to ask Stephen to, uh, to say a few words uh, to begin the program. <laughs>
2: very good. I would like to thank Anne-Marie for that gracious introduction and thank all the panelists for being here today and thank everyone in the audience for joining us to share an afternoon talking about poetry. And I've been tasked with the impossible mission of conveying to you the, the various strands of modern contemporary, modern and contemporary poetry and to do so in just a few minutes uh... when it would normally take me about four (laughs) hundred hours so I better get started I thought I'd start by just Uh, Pointing to something unusual, this is counterintuitive, but this project that Anne-Marie mentioned, Cooking with the Muse, is a cookbook that's also a a poetry book. It contains hundreds of recipes and hundreds of poems, and some recipes that could be poems, and that's the most um, avant-garde aspect of it. But I just thought I would point out some poems in the book to show you that they look different. These are all contemporary and some of them modern poems, but here's one called Spice Reflection. It's a sonnet. Uh, a love poem set in a restaurant. I wrote this one myself. Oh, by the way, this one's paired with a, a recipe for duck confit <laughs> spiced with <laughs> coriander and star anise, which is wonderful to make this time of year if you're not committed to, the, uh, to having turkey for Thanksgiving. There are turkey recipes here, too. Mm. Poets like to write about swans. Uh, the only problem with swan for Thanksgiving is that everybody fights over the neck. Um... <laughs> Here's, here's a recipe, here's another poem by Claude McKay, Harlem Renaissance poet. You see it's also a sonnet. So without explaining what a sonnet is, you can see they look very much alike. Um, here's another one uh, by the contemporary poet, Vietnamese-American poet, Mang Lan. It's called Love Poem to Spinach. and As you see, all the lines are uh, scattered across the page, and it, it looks very different. Um, and others might look more like, I mean, there are more sonnets by people from all over. Here's from a, a supermarket in California by Allen Ginsberg. And the first line of the poem is, What thoughts I have of you tonight, Walt Whitman. And it's written in long Whitmanian lines. So if these are all, and I write lines like that too. I don't just write sonnets. So the point I wanted to make is there's not one form that writers are writing in today. Um, some people may think that there's a, a 19th-century way of writing that's all formalist, and then there's a modern way of writing that's all open. But the terrain is much more complicated than that. So I thought I'd just mention briefly that there is even a group of new formalist poets: Dana Joya, Marilyn Hacker. Um, yeah, I can think of many: um, uh, Alfred Korn, right? I mean, the, the, a lot of us can think of examples who are write almost exclusively in form. They write sonnets, they write villanelles, and longer forms. This is not so different from. Uh, Uh, At the beginning of the 20th century and the mid to late 20th century, many other poets were doing. Uh, Robert Frost wrote this way. McKay, the um, uh, founding Harlem Renaissance poet, wrote this way. Auden. So I'm just going to let you know that group exists, but that's not what I'm going to focus on because modernism is often seen as a break with the past, both a formal break, though I don't think it applies as much to that particular team, but also a break in... Thematic, a break in subject matter and a a break in approach to theme, both modality and theme. So what we see in a lot of contemporary poems is radical subjectivity or radical objectivity or fragmentation or an emphasis on alienation, displacement. These are themes that define our era um, in poetry. And um, in contradistinction to that formalist school, uh, I passed out a sheet that you can all look at And I have a poem by the founding uh, American father of of modern American poetry, um, William Carlos Williams. I want to emphasize his middle name is Carlos. He's a Puerto Rican-American poet, also partly of Basque uh, Basque background, a first-generation immigrant. And that's important to know that, to understanding his work. It's important to know that. Uh, on the right, I have a poem by Archie Ammons. This is a contemporary poem, and you can see right away that the contemporary poem owes something or a lot to the William Carlos Williams poem of much earlier in the, you know, uh, of close to a century ago. So um, this, uh, this is the group. The, the, I would put not only um, William Carlos Williams in this group, but also Gertrude Stein, and I'm going to define this group as the local American modernist group as opposed to the formalist traditional group. And I thought, just start us off, why don't I just start us off by having us look at these poems so that we can get a feeling um, of understanding. So a lot of you know this poem, The Red Wheelbarrow. How many people have seen this before? How many people have heard of it? Okay, a lot of us have. How many people are still baffled by it? Don't necessarily understand it, right? Let me read it to you. The Red Wheelbarrow. And this is from a much larger work that is multi-genre. And um, it contains a lot of prose and criticism as well, all mixed together. So much depends upon a red wheel barrow glazed with rain water beside the white chickens. End of poem. And um, some people are perplexed by it nevertheless because it's not an exclamation. So much depends upon X exclamation point. It's not a, a complex sentence that has a dependent clause in it, so much depends upon X, that Y. That y. It just says, so much depends. Um, and that people find a little bit uh, agrammatical or unusual or asymmetrical, but Williams wants that effect. You can't, he's not writing a grammatical sentence, and he wants to do other things, like separate the word wheel from the word barrow, so that every word gets equal democratic attention. Uh, Similarly, if you look at the contemporary poem by uh, Ammons on the right, the spring in her step has turned to fall. Um, We just are watching a woman take a step, um, and we are also watching the season turn from spring to fall. And we land on fall, that's where the foot comes down. The poem is the action. The poem um, steers us in the direction that it is going in, and we could talk about it all day. You have no idea how much is going on here. But the point I want to state is that it's not in traditional form. It's everyday data, it's not oracular, it's not elusive or erudite. It's, it's attuned to the immediate and the politics of the poet are liberal. I could say that these are things that apply, these are um, characteristics that often apply to members of this team. And if we look back over the past century, who are some uh, poets and who, some schools of poetry that were inspired by the local American modernists, I would say that includes the beat poets, such as Allen Ginsberg, um, and Williams even included some of Ginsberg's letters in his epic Patterson. It would include the New York School, Kenneth Koch, John Ashbery who is a big, uh, just died recently, a big influence on everyone on this panel I believe, or at least on their friends. um, Frank O'Hara. and. For example, Kenneth Koch's one of his most favorite famous poems is entitled Variations on a Theme by William Carlos Williams. You can see the influence just by looking at the title. And then there's Ted Berrigan and Anselm Berrigan, if you want a contemporary poet that's still very much influenced by the New York School, or Dean Young. Uh, there's also an objectivist group, Olson and Creeley, uh, or the Black Mountain poets they're sometimes called, or the language poets. And maybe we'll look at an example of language poetry in, in a few moments, but that would include Charles Bernstein and Lynn Heginian. All of these poets claim that they love Williams. They're not particularly fond, for instance, of T.S. Eliot, the next poet I want to talk about. Um, but you know that, that Mang Lam poem I showed you uh, with all the words scattered across the page, very much influenced by Williams. And so it doesn't really matter. You can pick so many contemporary poets, Ellen Bass, Jane Hirschfeld, Uh, They have all been influenced by the local American modernists, William Carlos Williams and Gertrude Stein, and they, their grandfather is Whitman. So for a graphic for this talk, we're originally going to start with an image of Whitman as the grandfather of American poetry, but what he really is is the grandfather of this strand of American poetry which has ramified this trunk that has ramified out and created many branches. But Whitman wanted to break the back of the pentameter embrace people from all backgrounds and, and all walks of life and celebrate the flesh as much as, as much as the spirit. But then there's another group. And maybe I'll mention just one or two more groups, because I don't want to go on too long in this introduction. Um, and that would be the classical modernist group. So how many people have heard of T.S. Eliot? Okay, How many people can recite a T.S. Eliot poem by heart? <laughs> hard to do. It's harder to, it's harder to do than, um, but easier than to do with a Bernstein poem, for instance. But if we were to look um, underneath what I have here, the red wheelbarrow, there's a sample. Mr. Eliot's Sunday morning service. And without even reading the poem, you'll see the first word is polyphyloprogenitive. No, no, no word is too difficult for Eliot. Eliot, I mean, in other words, wants to make poetry difficult, and it's deliberate. My students sometimes look for that word in Greek and Latin dictionaries and they don't find it because it's, it, it's not there. Eliot made the word up. Um, it means something like loving to produce uh, much offspring. It has to do with the fertilization of eggs. It has to do with chickens in this sense and I think we could compare it to the chicken poem by William Carlos Williams. And without reading the entire poem, The Sapient Settlers of the Lord, those would be the learned salespeople of religion. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. Superfetation of tohen. That's a, a word in Greek that suddenly appears in the middle of his poem. And what he's talking about is how the, uh, how the learned salespeople of religion, theologians like Origen mentioned in the last line there, who castrated himself to bring himself closer to God, Uh, uh, their enterprise is completely futile because their work, the proliferation of interpretations they offer us do not bring everyday people closer to the divine. And in that sense, Eliot's frustrated that the erudition and subtlety of these great thinkers is futile and perhaps Eliot's own poem might be futile if he's trying to reach a deeper truth. And he was with Ezra Pound he formed a group of classical modernists who did not like conservatism. They did not necessarily want to preserve 19th century traditions. They wanted to reach back to something more titanic than rationalism or than market economies or than perfunctory um, practices of uh, Christian rituals. They wanted to reach back to a renaissance of classical, a of, uh, renaissance of the Renaissance, the, a rebirth of the great rebirth of classical antiquity and everything it signified for them. And so they set the bar high in terms of their erudition and what they were seeking uh, spiritually and um, in in, in their Eurocentric attitude that they were seeking uh, to um, embody what is best in the mind of Europe. They believed that Europe had a mind. And Williams rejected all of this. He felt that poetry is not sacred. Poetry does not have a philosophical mission like this. It's not oracular. Um, all those things I said about Williams, Williams hated Eliot. Eliot did not think much of Williams. Williams loved Stein. Pound and Eliot worked together. And you would think that you know Eliot wouldn't have many you know, uh, incarnations today, but I gave an example on the right of the contemporary poem Shiloh Church. Um, and you can see right in the second line, we get bland vistas milky with Jehovah's calm, so an invocation of the biblical Lord, and it ends with the line, in deserts drop the odd white turds of bone, which is not a good omen. And uh, basically, this poet is suggesting that even those who were sacrificing themselves for the noble cause of ending slavery uh, committed you know, great slaughter and therefore believed that they were... Unredeemable, and so there's a great, or might not be redeemed, or that they were sinful. And so there's the same sense of futility and historicism and high language in this poem that we find in the Eliot poem. But these are not the only heirs of Eliot. And so what I want to suggest is that Eliot and Williams, if you put them together, if you take Eliot's classicism or at least his architecture, and you combine it with Williams' local Belief in local modernism, you get other groups of poets like the American Sublime, the Hart Crane, Wallace Stevens group, or the confessional poets, the uh, Lowell and Plath and Sexton and Berryman. And I thought maybe I'd give you a couple of examples, one example of a confessional poem, and then I would pretty much end the talk there. But uh, we have this one by Sylvia Plath, Lady Lazarus. Actually, put it next to this line from Eliot in Prufrock I am Lazarus, come back from the dead. Come back to tell you all. I shall tell you all. There's another side to Eliot to balance the erudition. He often includes his own anguish or expressions of his own anguish in in his work. And confessional poets like Eliot in The Wasteland in this moment describes under that his wife having a nervous breakdown. My nerves are bad tonight. Yes, bad. Stay with me. Speak to me. And that passage ends with, I think we are in Rat's Alley, where the dead men lost their bones. So you can see the influence on the Hill poem, the contemporary poem. But you can also see that Eliot is talking about a problem in his marriage, about a, a, a mental breakdown, about his wife's nervous breakdown. And she did end up in, in an asylum. And Eliot finished The Wasteland while making clay pots in a sanatorium. And he lets you know it in the poem. Um, That's why uh, his influence is so great, because a lot of poets in the late 20th century and 21st century are interested in revealing intimate details about themselves in their poems. So this poem by Sylvia Plath, for example, in it she describes a suicide attempt or multiple suicide attempts. The second time I meant to to last it out and not come back at all. I rocked shut as a seashell. They had to call and call and pick the worms off me like sticky pearls. Dying is an art. Like everything else, I do it exceptionally well. I do it so it feels like hell. I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say I have a call." And then she did take her own life. So she's revealing um, how she feels. And and Sexton um, took up poetry when her analyst suggested that it might be cathartic for her it might be a way for her to deal with her postpartum depression. I also included here, we don't have time to talk about it, in the lower left corner a Franz Wright poem, contemporary poet writing in the confessional mode, and on the next page poems by Tracy K. Smith and Ocean Vong, which I don't think are as raw and intense as the Plath poem, but are still in the confessional Mm -hmm. mode. Uh, Sharon Olds, there are many contemporary poets writing in this mode and other groups that I don't really have time to talk about right now would include the post-colonial poets Derek Walcott and company or what do you think, for instance, of erasure poems, is that a new kind of poetry or is that just a a tool or a technique that poets use to inspire them? What about slam poetry and New Nuyorican poetry, maybe some of you have heard of that, Uh, heavily influenced by uh, the beat poets. but uh, that's another possible group we could talk about. What about what's happening on the internet today? Tumblr poetry. Um, is that uh, you know, a good enough platform for poetry? Uh, what do people think about conceptual poetry? Maybe Anne Marie or others no. on the panel <laughs> could explain what that's about some more. But the, the point I might end with is that I didn't really have time to talk about Walcott the I, w- way I wanted to. But there is also a multi, uh, multicultural post-colonial strand and I want to suggest that poetry today is much more diverse. So the, 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 the few strands I gave you merge, and um, uh, some poets are hybrid, and there are a lot more women poets than there used to be, a lot more openly gay poets and lesbian poets. So poets from um, Whitman to Ashbury were gay, but they didn't always write about that directly. Um, a lot more uh, recent immigrant poets or poets who write about their background. And, so forth and so on. So maybe that's one place to look for the difference. And I thought I would just open this up to the panel. Do, they, do people on the panel agree uh, uh, with this schema, with this map, or uh, where do we want to take it from here? So,
3: yes. Well,
4: I will supplement Stephen's remarks. I'm going to give you the Twitter version <laughs> of where we've come from and where we are now. Uh, And I'm very glad to look at these, because these are examples of a lot of what's happened. American poetry today, we are very lucky to be readers of it. Which brings me to the question, and do not be embarrassed by this, how many of you actually read poetry regularly? Most people do not. Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) Yes, And a much bigger proportion than usual, because usually today, people remember poetry from college, or they'll see a couple of poems in The New Yorker. They're not really conversant with it. But American poetry is definitely the most diverse, energetic poetry in the English-speaking world today. How did we get here? That's what I'm going to talk about briefly. American poetry has always been marked by improvisation and very idiosyncratic invention, especially when we finally turned, finally, away from European models and from overvaluing all things European in the arts. In this century, the 21st, our poetry is fully, finally, triumphantly American. What does that mean? To better understand where we are now, we can look at where we've been, and here comes the Twitter version of it. American poetry has a forefather, Walt Whitman, and it has a foremother, Emily Dickinson. And in some sense, all later developments point to one or another of these wildly different, wildly idiosyncratic poets. They invented kinds of poetry the world hadn't seen before, which is still going on, and they also invented themselves. The invention of the self is a very American undertaking, and I would argue at the heart of what's happening in poetry right now. A good place to start in recent times, and this is supplementing or complementing what Stephen said, start with the 1950s, marked by Beat Poetry, Ginsberg, and a competing formalism, very traditional poems, meter and rhyme. Think of Allen Ginsberg, whom I'm sure most of you have heard of, and Richard Wilbur, who really, until 96, still going strong. In the late 50s and the early 60s, confessional poetry dominated as the new thing. And you notice this again is the self. But I would want to say that even when it purports to be your actual self, talking about what's going on in your life, it isn't. It's a linguistic creation of a self that speaks in the poem. Uh, Think of Anne Sexton, Robert Lowell, Sylvia Plath, some of the people that Stephen mentioned. Well, I hope that's not the first time, but here it is. In the late 60s and in the 1970s, language poetry arrives on the scene. And this is an avant-garde movement that's generated instant heated controversy. Traditionally, which I mean hundreds of years, a lyric poem was marked specifically by the creation of a single, stable speaking voice. And a poem that was led by the author to a certain conclusion, in other words, closure. Practitioners and theorists of language poetry insisted, no, language is speaking itself in any given poem. There is no stable single self or speaker and a reader has to step in to create and make meaning out of a poem. No one authorial voice controls meaning in a poem. I think this is the most significant thing that happened in this very brief history. This poem also resists closure, bringing you to the neat end you'll be familiar with in any traditional poem. Instead, a poem is a process and it stays open-ended. These poetry wars raged for decades, and they were heated. <laughs> uptown, mainstream, traditional versus downtown, experimental, innovative, resisting belief in a single self and in the authorial imposition of meaning. And you can think of the movements really geographically as centered Uptown, 92nd Street-wide, downtown, St. Mark's, and the Poetry Project. But what happened is that where we are now is that gradually poets writing simply took devices from every point on the poetic spectrum a lot of which Stephen has touched on. So what were once bitterly fought and contested ideological matters simply were co-opted as techniques that a poet would deploy to expand his or her expressive range which is very much what I do and almost everyone I know does. For example, Collage, fragmentation, multiple voices speaking within a poem, disjunctive development, great big leaps from one thing to another, and very quick shifts of tone and speech registers. Collapsing of distinctions between high culture and popular culture. So you could say, no more uptown or downtown, everybody's gone to Brooklyn, which is where we are now, (laughs) geographically I'll say a couple of more things. External conditions have radically impacted poetry today. And one very important development, in my opinion, is the diminished influence of the gatekeepers. I don't wanna put a particular, but I'd say last 10, 20 years. To get your poems into publication, you would pass through an elaborate series of people who put their imprimatur on, yes, this is worthy of publication. But recently, journals and presses have proliferated And the web provides another very far-reaching and very different means of disseminating poems, which I'm happy Polo's going to talk about. Much, though certainly not all, of the most interesting work in poetry is coming out of small, independent presses. And there's no one kind of poetry that predominates, as Stevens also indicated. An anecdote here, a few years ago, the National Book Awards... The five finalists for poetry were all from tiny little barely known presses, which understandably annoyed uh, the more commercial and mainstream presses who, after all, as they pointed out, were funding these awards. So that mistake got corrected in the next (laughs) series of National Poetry Awards. Uh, At this moment, I conclude there is no center in American poetry. But at any given moment, one or another of these many strands you mentioned tend to be highlighted or spotlighted. So right now, for example, we're hearing more from traditionally underrepresented voices. Here's an example. Besides Frank Bidar, who won the National Poetry Award this year, two of the four finalists drew on their experience as African-Americans and the third drew on her experience as a Lakota Indian, Native American. The other big thing that I notice and you'll all notice is as you'd expect there's an outpouring of poems responding politically to the dire situation the country and in fact the world is finding itself in. I'm struck by the melding of political response with intense lyricism, which is something new in political or social response poetry. Ocean Vuong, you have an example there, his new book, His only book, Night Sky with Exit Wounds, is an example of this. He is a Vietnamese-born refugee. But there is no center now and no one kind or kinds of poems that predominate.
5: It's good that there's no center. (laughs) I agree. One way in which you evaluate um, any... Country or any time period in literature is to go to the to see who's publishing these particular writers and for the poets especially, the literary journal, literary review, literary magazine, however you call it, whether in print or online, and if online, whether it also involves uh, audio. Uh, that's that There may be hundreds, probably more than a thousand literary journals, um, and they're not all doing the same thing. There is going to be some overlap on what people consider to be good poetry. It will, in, in what Patricia and Stephen have talked about it. They will be representing certain kinds of poetry styles of poetry um, certain modes uh, whether it's uh, formal or not, but I think there's a kind of poetry for every kind of person. Unfortunately, schools where we get poetry from the beginning don't represent the wide variety of poems available um, uh, that, that people are writing um, literary journals are the are the means by which poets get read. Um, so there should be wider reading of of the literary journals, but online there 's a wider readership um, they, you, It takes a long time to put together a collection of poetry as a book. So the magazines support writers and give them readers. They're stepping stones in some cases. Some smaller magazines lead to larger magazines. But one thing that they do represent is all the different subjects that you could be writing about. Surfing, beekeeping, um, art, uh, science, uh, math, money, um, the there's no matter who you are, if you have an ability to uh, write about something in the form of a poem, um, a poem can be a form of communication, a way to uh, a almost a different kind of language by which to to talk about something, um, and it is also its own form. Uh, but so uh, the. While there are many general interest uh, literary journals, uh, Barrow Street would be one, Kenyon Review, Agni, all of those that are, in essence, interested in whatever you may want to send them if you write in the way that they deem is uh, good poetry, uh, there are lots of magazines that want very specific subjects. I don't, you know, um, so that's an anthology name, of, on on food. But there's a, a specific magazine called Alimentum, whose uh, whose who's, the publisher is mm-hmm. a chef and a poet, and she um, and they take poetry and fiction and nonfiction about food. But the food verse contest out of Literal Latte is also an option. Um, in fact, one there. of
2: the poems in, in this book came uh, was a winner in that contest.
5: Oh, okay, yes. Also,
2: I have a huge number of my own poems in this book, so we don't even know if it's an anthology or a book <laughs> of recipes. Or, but, but this is what we can do today. There doesn't necessarily have to be... Um, the, the rules are... are, there, are there, there are lots of ways to blur boundaries. Yes. Um, and that's... Yes. I, 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 there are lots of points I could pick up, but I'll let you finish. For
5: yes. Some,
4: and yes. I would just want to mention that there's a
5: poet laureate of the Union Square Green Market. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there's there oh, a there perfect example. There's yeah. there's okay. never never anything that you can't write about, uh, or some post you can't have in poetry. Um, good for the times. There are two. Off the bat, that I can think of, literary journals focused on work and being out of work. There's one called Draft Horse, um, and there's one called Just Work. Um, work. That's an online magazine, and they they have a very um, nondescript white sort of background, so that if you want to read it at work and look like you're just read it, looking at some, <laughs> not looking at a magazine. Uh, uh, but these are like any kind of any kind of work, uh, blue collar. White collar, pink collar, sex work, volunteer—anything they say. Um, there's J Journal, which is out of the John Jay School of Criminal Justice, and they want justice, just the letter J. Uh, there's the Five Two Crime Poetry Weekly, um, and there's there are, there's politics and ends up in most successfully in in everywhere, but New Verse News. The Boston Review, which is a, uh, a magazine that, that doesn't have to take poetry on politics, uh, but, but has a, a focus overall in the magazine on, on progressive politics. Um, there's pop culture and is wanted by many magazines, but, but it's all that Barrel House wants. Everything, poetry, fiction, nonfiction, has to. If it doesn't have pop culture, send it elsewhere, they say. But Gargoyle, they like history and subculture and culture and pop culture. Um, the largest um, areas now are um, the health, injury, uh, illness, death as represented in these magazines that come out of medical universities, uh, by and large. There's Bellevue Literary Review, which is actually out of NYU uh, Medical, these are edited by doctors and nurses who may also be writers, as well as some writers uh, regular who are not in the medical fields. Uh, they want um, that magazine tends to they so they ushered in this idea. But there are now, uh, to my uh, uh, that I've counted 29 that come out of not of uh, medical. Universities. There's the Healing Muse up in um, one of the SUNY, SUNY colleges, bioethics. Uh, they like a little more of a lyric poem than a narrative poem that Bellevue likes. And then there's Hospital Drive down in Virginia. There's all, one that's not associated with a medical program, Recovery, which is an online magazine. They spell it RK.V.RY. Wants all four definitions, well, among the, write something about from one of the four definitions of recovery, which can include also um, obtaining usable resources from unusable sources, but it can also be recovery that isn't successful. So you can write along a wide range of, of health and injury related. Subjects and then the other big area is the nature, environment, um, ecology, place. And if you if you just want to write about the pleasure of nature and human interaction, snowy egret is one. Uh, maybe ecotone. And uh, if you want to write about the ecology, there's Poecology. ecology. Uh, there's a precipitate journal and. Um, avocet and about place that are interested in the more environmental, the loss of nature rather than the pleasures of nature. And I don't know, there's Step Away magazine, if you want to write about neighborhoods. There's just everything out there. that's a start. There's so much more, I would say. Um, But you know, and it, it goes into books, of course. You know, there's one of my favorite more recent books is by Nick Lance. It's called We Don't Know, We Don't Know. And he bases, um, uh, he uses either Pliny the Elder or um, uh, Donald Rumsfeld quotes. So the we don't know, we don't know is is a Donald Rumsfeld quote. And he uses elliptical, the elliptical quality of those uh, statements in poems about very serious things as well as humor.
2: Right, so even if we're just talking about poems about nature and place, I can think of a few more, like terrain.org is just about yes. the, the environment built or natural, and there are others like Appalachia people are going uh, camping and want to read a poem when, that, when they're yes. learning how to make a tent. Yes. So uh, what, what, what Amy's suggesting is just the diversity and the, the range of subject matter that is sometimes a revelation to people. Um, but but to, to also speak uh, to a point that, um, and I, I think that Paolo's going to want to pick up <laughs> a little bit on the point about the homogenization uh, in education or something. Like, no, okay, not necessarily. But I think I first want to pick up on the point that um, that uh, Patricia raised about uh, uh, the fragmentation of voices in, in contemporary poetry. And um, I'm just going to ask um, um, how would we make a distinction then between... because there's one thing that I tried to point out is that we can draw a line from poets earlier in the modern era to poets who are contemporary. It seems that as soon as this was happening, as soon as modernism uh, cracked the egg, so to speak. And I was suggesting I'm kind of giving an answer, Eliot kind of wanted to put the chicken back into the egg, but mm-hmm. he, he ends um, his wasteland with a, with a pastiche of different languages and it's somewhat radical to a modern reader. He called it classicism, but it can look like craziness. The end of the wasteland goes like this, shall I set my lands in order? Um, and then the next line is, poi saskosi che i affina quando fiam uti calidan oh, swallow, swallow the prince that La tour aboli. These fragments I have shored against my ruins. London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. Why then I'll fit you. Hieronimo is mad again. Tata, damyata, dayadvam. Chantish, chantish, chantish. So that's Eliot's version of classicism. But to us it might sound like craziness. How how are poets today? Um, in, in their embrace of different voices in different languages, doing something different from what Eliot is doing?
4: Well, I think what Eliot is doing in that sense is formal and technical. It's a tissue of voices. But I also want to suggest that uh, Eliot had a pretense of objectivity in that he's writing about a dis- disarray and uh, dissolution of Western civilization. But more and more, when people read Eliot, it's pretty clear he's talking about his own psyche. And this is Mm -hmm. far more personal poetry Mm -hmm. than Eliot would ever have acknowledged. In fact, almost all of Eliot's notes and essays, and he's not alone among poets in doing this, most poets develop uh, an aesthetics or a poetics that happens to be what they're doing. (laughs) And he was no exception to that. Uh, In his view, you couldn't be subjective, you had to be objective, but almost everything he does is subjective. Here is what I would say about Eliot. The difference between Eliot and what happened in what I consider to be current happens in that fault line uh, when you move to language poetry. And it's very connected. I don't know how many of you, you remember the 70s or have read about they 're intensely theoretical that 's where I may add importation mostly of European ideologies again it 's not really American uh, and what that 's what the cracking of the self is coming from, and where I would draw the fault line is really in a self conception of the self. I think that what happened is people both culturally and ideologically, lost the sense that they were one person. And now that doesn't mean there aren't people writing I poems, of course there are. It's a lyric, I did this, I love this one, I feel this way. But it's a constructed I. And a stable self has simply dropped out of the equation and that's where I would draw the distinction. That wouldn't have been something that Eliot himself writing about uh, would have acknowledged or any of the other people. So, I would draw it. Modernism is considered to be uh, the cracking and destruction of the past. Postmodernism is considered to be a return to that, but in an ironic way. And I would want to suggest that what's happening now is really something different and that it's back to that conception and reinvention of a multiple self. If you look, actually, if you think about yourself for a minute, Uh, aren't you kind of one person on Monday at four and another person Thursday at seven? (laughs) And it's that sensibility that I think has crept across all of these different schools. And the one other Mm -hmm. thing I'd want to say is I think that we are, which is helpful, all of us, dividing poems and poets into schools and into movements. But when you come right down to it, every strong poet is a school of one. And these groups that you can... Uh, that we all do, that I did it myself. They're they're bird's eye or schematic maps, but like a map, you know, if you get right down on the ground, uh, an area that looks as if you could group it, no, there's a rock here, there's a pond there, and they are in fact quite individual and idiosyncratic. That would be my long answer to your somewhat short question. Right, so we
2: went from uh, a time where people, uh, especially those with a Eurocentric leaning, were having yes. a crisis of faith, and they're representing a kind of trauma, also associated with, you know, became a kind of a trauma that a lot more people could relate mm-hmm. to once World War I hit and so forth. And, we, you know, people asked if... If, if civilization was moving backwards, as we just developed greater weapons and greater ways of of, of of creating mass destruction and so forth, so there's a lot of trauma that underlies the fragmentation and even the fragmentation of voices. But what I think Patricia is saying is, people, you know, across the modern era, writers and artists learn to also embrace the fragmentation and to see it as um, an expression of just one's. Um, well, Think of it the way the Buddhists will say that there is no self, that one's fundamental humanity depends on not, not being attached to that ego. Whereas uh, there's a tortured quality to some who let go of that ego, and others celebrate that. And I think the ones that celebrate it more are more influenced by that local American modernist group. The fragmentation in Williams is very different from the fragmentation in Eliot, but I thought I'd give an example. I have this poem by Charles Bernstein. Um, just a fragment. Um... And um, again, you know, the, well, this is, he's a, sometimes categorized as a language poet, and they trace their influence to, to uh, new school poets who loved Williams. But uh, take this harrow off my chest. I don't feel it anymore. It's getting stark, too stark to see. I feel I'm barking at hell's spores, the new sentence. Um, what is the I in that poem? Is that the speaker? Or is that coming out of a Bob Dylan song? Or have I just <laughs> given too much away? <laughs> but you know, uh, there's a way in which the, part of the, uh, the, the language is uh, appropriated, as earlier modernists, Eliot Pound, appropriated a lot of foreign languages and even whole lines from other texts into their work. But um, here it's much more playful. I don't think he's making some grand statement about civilization. And um, um, it's, 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 it's a medium uh, for play. I'm barking at hell's spores. Hell's spores, heaven's door. Um, The words correspond, and yet we're almost saying the opposite, but we're not really talking about hell the way a confessional poet would.
6: I wanted to say, I think actually this poem is about language poetry. The New Sentence is a very influential book (coughs) criticism written by uh, Ron Silliman. Yes. Right? And Charles Bernstein is based in the East Coast, and the term language poetry is an arbitrary designation for a group of uh, uh, poets primarily in the Bay Area, some in the East Coast, who were reading Marx very deeply and considering capital and its relation to language. And in the new sentence, Ron Silliman, he's exploring, and I'm just generalizing here because he explores a lot, uh, parataxis. You have syntax where you have word order, right determining meaning then you have hypotaxis which is the kind of sentence that James Baldwin was great at a lot of subordinate clauses and then you have parataxis which i think ancient greek is in where you don't really know every word isn't in its rightful order and so that opens up meaning and gertrude stein is considered to be still even a limit for language writing and a, a, a goddess and a god for language writers because her writing truly decenters opens up uh, the English sentence and you know maybe open is a euphemism right? <laughs> Destroys it right? Yes. And, 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 yes. and, and, and that has everything to do with her growing up hearing and speaking four languages being uh, queer, Jewish, in occupied France, living in France as an American, right? And really writing at midnight till six in the morning, right, when everyone's asleep, right? Your, Your brain is not really paying much attention to word order at that time, right? But she embraced that negative capability. So I think also with Charles Bernstein, who I know personally, He's also um, interested in the tradition of Jewish comics coming out of the Catskills. And so there's a playfulness that is very specific to his work that you will not find in other language poets.
4: But I'm so That's glad a, you mentioned yeah. playfulness, No, go on. Yeah. And so did Stephen. You, I didn't mean... Please go on.
6: Oh, okay. <laughs> um, if I, if I just wanted to uh, add uh, my two cents. I don't have a, an elaborate... Um, outline, prepared. I just want to say in terms of how I see poetry being different today, um, there's a lot more diversity, mm-hmm. right? And by diversity, I mean you have a lot of poets of color with first books, a lot of, uh, well, for the last 35 years, I think there have been more uh, female poets being published. But now you have a lot of poets of color, a lot more women poets, a lot of GLBT poets, a lot of trans poets who are not just coming out with collections, but gaining visibility because their books are actually being given awards. Uh, I think the first book of trans poetry came up came out two years ago, published by Night Boat Books, mm-hmm. which published uh, my last uh, full collection. Um, and I, you actually see poetry bestsellers. Claudia Rankine, who has a background in experimental poetry, she published Citizen which has sold an astonishing number of copies, right? So maybe that also speaks to the moment that we're in that's unique, where we are dealing with social, right, in a way that we haven't before because of the mediums at our disposal to engage with it, right? So you have Rupi Kaur. I don't know if you've read Rupi Kaur. K-A-U-R. She's from Toronto. She's South Asian Canadian, she was publishing her poetry on Tumblr, I believe. And um, amassed, Instagram. Amassed, or Instagram, and amassed like a following of 2 million followers. And she's published three books of poems that are bestsellers. Number one on Amazon. Everywhere. Right? And you couldn't see more diverse aesthetics in these two best best-selling poets. right? They have a very popular populist poet and droopy car and then you have uh, Claudia Rankin whose work is challenging right? Um, I also wanted to say perhaps these um, uh, sensations are also made possible because of social media I don't think uh, Claudia Rankin has a very palpable digital footprint but certainly her press does most poetry publishers, and maybe let's bear in mind, like most of, most of us poets are published by small presses, it's a gift economy, right? But let me uh, correct that by saying there are poets who are making a lot of money these days, and they have careers, right? But social media, you get on YouTube, you get on Instagram, you know, Linman Will Miranda was in the White House, dropped that Hamilton piece, and That was it, right? I mean, it's more than that. He worked his butt off for that, and it was a build-up. But, yeah, social media can really give you a visibility and then an agency that poets 10 years ago couldn't enjoy, right? Now, having said that, and I mentioned poets have careers now, there's a professionalization of poetry, right? Like you have career tracks as a poet. Poets have agents now, right? They do. Like they have agencies. There are three big agencies now. If you want to book a poet, you've got to talk to their agent. Right? That's relatively new. Right? They used to be exclusive to folks, uh, big names, you know. But now it's not so exclusive. Folks with first books that make a mark digitally, they have agents. Right? And that's also, I think, uh, a phenomenon made possible because of the rise in prominence and prevalence of the MFA, oh. MFA programs, right. That's a
2: Master of Fine Arts, so creative writing. writing programs, yeah. Yeah. which uh, were not nearly so numerous even a few decades ago as they are now. Now every yeah. university yeah. and community college has one, right. Yeah. So, um, so uh, Paola, you seem to be saying that it's um, something of a mixed bag, that there might be poets that we've heard of like Rupi Kaur, but uh, at the same time you're saying that that getting known might depend on the internet or depend on how a press promotes the work. Um, And yet, um, to take the Rupi Kaur example, then to to, to write in a way that's suitable for uh, an Instagram post, you have to write really short poems that would appeal to everyone. And uh, you might actually sell over a million books, between one and two million books, when you put them together in a book, but is this really the way to construct the best poems is um, online construct. Because, I mean, poesis, the the Greek word means a a made thing. Is there enough of an artifact there, or enough agency on the part of the poet, or is it a matter of pursuing what's trending, or a matter of pursuing the bigger audience as you move? Um, And does that take us out of the, uh, the creative space that a lot of poets would want to operate in. And that's a a question, right,
6: um, that you might be raising. Well, I I guess in terms of, I mean, there's no questioning taste, and I'm always hesitant to sort of qualify a poet's work. I'm always mindful of Gertrude Stein's reception. Right. Right? Look, now she's undeniably one of the greats, and she's still influencing poets. But what fascinates me about Rupi Kaur is the platform that enabled her success, right? Instagram, Mm -hmm. which is also the platform, Instagram, Twitter, you gotta have a Twitter handle. You don't have to, but that's how a lot of poets coming up uh, are thinking, like they feel that it's incumbent on their career that they have a digital uh, presence or digital citizenship. Get a Twitter account, uh, you have a nice author photo that gives you traction. Right, but, so, but
1: it makes you write very short poems. Right?
6: <laughs> not necessarily. But I, I think what's interesting then maybe for me my question would be, well let's talk about that, like these platforms that are enabling a greater visibility for poets and then we can talk about the poetry after. I always am mindful of the fact that myself personally I've been Facebook free for eight years um, <laughs> 12-point This is way, way before, you know, the, the fake news scandal. Like, you know, all that stuff, right? But I was always very uncomfortable about it just because it was so distracting from writing the poem for me. It's so hard to do that uh, to begin with. Um, uh, and so, but, but I think my point is that you've got Tumblr, uh, you've got Facebook, you've got Instagram, Twitter. They're owned by billionaires, Right? So there's, a, there's an inescapable matrix there of poetry and capital that is new, yeah. but is mm-hmm. not discussed, yes. right? So no, I think no, it's no. worth, as a poet, I, what you make your poems on now is definitely something that I think about, and who am I giving it to? Not to be a paranoid or anything, but I think about <laughs> it, because I'm going to be giving money to... I don't want to get, you know, I can fight the power on Twitter, but what's-his-name is cashing it in, person who runs Twitter.
4: You're probably looking at the only two Facebook-free poets in the country (laughs) gathered right here today. It's, you know, the professional, I'm thinking about it just in what's come up, two things. One is the professionalization of poetry, which is actually an odd and rather modern thing. Uh, There didn't used to be a career track, but there absolutely is now, complete with resumes and credits that you amass. That's partly because, although there are some poets on the net, and that's just going to increase, who can actually make money at this, most poets still cannot. They're dependent on a day job and the day job has increasingly been in the university which Mm -hmm. has also had an effect on the poetry it's a cyclical feedback kind of thing i think Mm -hmm. and then the second part of that that i wouldn't want to lose is play which you brought up and which paolo brought up you can forget about all of this that the purpose of poetry is pleasure (laughs) and the way to read a poem is to immerse yourself and experience the poem and you mentioned Negative capability. It was Keats thing about poetry is ruined for many people. I'm happy that I read it way before I ever got any of it in school. <laughs> look good. It's taken into school. in the What is this poem saying? No, that's not what poems are doing. What they're doing is setting forth something in a dance with the language that creates pleasure, play, and the meaning of the experience, which you will only feel if you let yourself experience it. So although we're trying to map it here, we all know, and you all know too, that's really not. The poetry escapes that, and it's not where it should be. It's only a useful way of doing it. I don't know what's going to happen. I still don't. When you look at the history of poetry, which I tend to take a long view of, really a very long view of, (laughs) uh, going back actually a couple thousand years, what survives, what survives of people's poems at the most is a handful of really good poems, and I think that's going to be the same thing. That isn't to say that I don't have a um, negative or positive view of what's going on now. It's one way of disseminating it. Claudia Ranking to me, is a superb poet. I really love her work. And what she did in her book particularly called Don't Let Me Be Lonely... Mm-hmm. Is she put okay. all kinds of logos and things from newspapers and all kinds to give you the felt sense? What is it like? What does it feel like to be an American at this moment? I really don't know any any book that does it as well. That's what poetry can do. But the other thing I'd say is that you know Keats referred to poets as possessing negative capability, which is the irrit. Uh, The ability to take something in without, he said, any irritable reaching after reason. But I would want to suggest that that's not about poets. That's about the way everybody should be reading poems. You should look at your own response first. And then you can say afterward, well, what in this poem gave me that response? And the last thing I'd say is about poetry always pulling two ways. It looks It's language, so it may look more intellectual to people than it, in fact, is. But it's words on a page, and in one way, they're pulling toward meaning, but in the other way, they're pulling toward sheer play, yes. tending toward music, and that's where you see Stephen's great examples. Even look at the Bernstein, look what he's doing with rhyme in there. W. H. Auden, when he was judging the Yale series, Younger Poets, he said... Uh, And he also edited a book called Good, Bad Poetry, (laughs) which was just a whole lot of things, Ogden Nash kinds of things and liberate kinds of things. And he said, I have much more confidence in a poet who is just playing around (laughs) whatever the reverse of it than I do in anybody who is um, more purportedly serious. So that would be my take on this phenomenon. And I, like Paulo, have no idea what's going to happen now that you can sell a million copies of something. I still think a handful of poems are going to survive of anybody's.
2: Yes, well, it is very hard to know the trajectory of something, something that's very big at one time, Mm -hmm. might not be so significant later. Mm -hmm. To take take an example from England, I mean, if we went back 100 years, the most renowned poet would be Robert Bridges, poet laureate of England, and an unknown poet who he was actually aware of, but nobody knew who he was, was... um, Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, and Hopkins was published, you know, he died in his 40s, was published after his death. And um, you know, if you look at anthologies, there's some point where Robert Bridges disappears and Hopkins becomes, because he invented his own language, um, becomes the forebear of a, a whole, uh, you know, talk about play. You know, a dapple dawn-drawn falcon, is that a falcon drawn by the dawn, or is that um, a, a falcon drawn like a picture in the dawn, or mm, yeah. is the dawn drawing the falcon Is the falcon? He, he just created compound complex words that no one had ever seen before, in language combinations. Um, and I think there are poets now doing things, just to talk about play, so I'm segging into this comment on play. Um... You know, like Bill Knott, who invented his own language, or Joan Houlihan. I mean, most people don't know who they are because Mm -hmm. people really want narrative very often. Mm -hmm. They want something they can get right into, but um, uh, those poets are not all that well-known necessarily, but they might end up being much more important in the long run, and so uh, it takes a while for all these things to sort out to talk about reception.
5: I want to also add in about play and also about the platform and back to the um you know editors the more curious and flexible editors of magazines is that if you do there are uh Twitter there are a lot of magazine editors who are on Twitter and they and and so if you if you're a poet you can find out about things and they, and they they uh, post when poems are are published, but they also have Twitter-specific uh, contests and little things. So you're writing <laughs> these tiny things. So maybe it's it's not what you're going to do all the time, but it's another way in which to play and be confined by something, and then to create within a, a form, which is which is part of what poetry does. Um, and and other platforms are like that.
2: Uh, well, haiku would be and perfect. Sometime, for
5: well, yes, they do have specific haiku ones, but they also have other on, other kinds of poems. And then you can also do it with a, as we know, a series of tweets can create um, a poem. You don't have to just like it can be a rant. Um, uh, so I would I would say that that. Uh, Play, the lang- language is first, I agree, in a poem. And just what that language is matters to a whole lot of different people in a whole lot of different ways. Uh, so, yes.
2: Well, um, you know, it, w- one would think, I mean, uh, um, Natasha Saye asked Cam- Campbell McGrath, who is a poet who does really interesting work with, uh, in, you know, with pop culture and so forth. Oh, but and makes political statements. Um, you know, w- what do you think of Twitter, poetry, and so forth? And he said, like, you know, it seems like now, because we have um, these, short-form, sh- these short-form platforms that would know, be perfect for haikus, and everyone would be writing great haikus, but that's not really happening. And perhaps because it's all disposable, it's a disposable context, and people don't really want to stop and think about a poem all day, they want to keep swiping. Um, and poetry really requires sustained attention. The play is, uh, is play, but it, it, it takes a while to sink in and it's, it's, uh, it's a very kind of artful chaos even when it looks chaotic. Uh, for example, if we look at the Gertrude Stein poem, what strikes me, I, I put it next to the Bernstein poem because it's also based on music. And people will look at it and see sweet, 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 sweet tea, Susie Asado, sweet, 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 sweet tea, Susie Asado. First of all, it sounds good, so we're already, there are things we like to say, like when Wallace Stevens says, B, be," finale of Zim, you just want to keep saying that, and I think that's part of the appeal. People might not realize that Susie Asado is a flamenco dancer, and she's imitating, I wouldn't say imitating because she's not a representative poet, she's embodying the sound of the flamenco dance, you know. and I, I wish I could stand up and dance a little bit, but it's like, you know, sweet, 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 sweet. T, Susie Asato. You know, um, so uh, the language is its own music. And then the, if you look at the syntax, she's, there's no one more radical today. Susie Asato is a told tray sure. A lean on the shoe, this means slip, slips hers. It's completely ungrammatical. But people will even look at told tray sure and they'll see a tray there. and Maybe the tea could go on a tray and that would be yeah. domestic calm that could contrast with the uh, the Passion of the Flamenco Dancer, or maybe treasure is T-R-E-S-S-U-R-E, like the French word, Tresure, or maybe it's treasure, like something we really value, and the, 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 the opportunity to just play with words and associations is great, and yet she didn't want us to, as as, say a confessional poet like Plath or a poet like Eliot might have wanted to to say, you know, I think we are in Rat's Alley where the dead men lost their bones. You say Rat's Alley could be the trenches of World War One. You're comparing the breakup in your marriage to world to a, you know to a battle. And she didn't want to do that. She wanted to get the words clean, to to wipe them free of the associations with which you come to them, and. Um, uh, you know, it's striking to see how much the language poets can resemble a poet uh, who really just founded the movement. You know, uh, you know, er,
6: much earlier in the modernist era. Yeah. So, but Stein, um, but Stein actually was trying to be a bestseller, right? She wrote. Well, um, yes, she wrote yeah. books. That yeah. She wrote, she like the really autobiography wanted...
1: of Alice B. Toklas was written yeah. to yeah. make money and be a bestseller. Yeah. And, and she became
6: a bestseller. <laughs> but yeah, that's sure. not. What, yeah. But she yeah. felt
1: bad about yeah. it. She wanted to write like this, but she couldn't get published. But you know what, she never was
2: accepted as much in the, you know, in the, um, in the ivory tower. Um, and, and you can find this, you know, with po- there are those who are accepted more in that kind of, um, it's, it's That's the way part- the beat poets had a hard time getting accepted as, as establishment writers. They were viewed as, as, um, activists who just, the way, perhaps they're followers of the New Yorican poets today and slam poetry, I mean some of it is not good, I mean, we have to admit because it's poetry for everybody, but uh, some of it, you know, is based on written poems that are actually, that's why I put a slam poem next to a, uh, uh, a Ginsburg poem so you can see the, uh, you know, really it's obviously coming out of Ginsburg, but um, people are still writing like this. I'm not going to read it to you, but uh, it's very political as Ginsburg was and as Whitman was. Um,
5: different so. kinds of political, you don't have to be, you know, like the social issues are a political way of, you, know, you could write about violence, you could write about violence, um, uh, not being able to find a job, you could write about all kinds of uh, social issues and be in, a, in, a, in, in some way, uh, or have a social conscience without it being the upper politics um, of, you know, you know, uh, What's happening in the presidential mm. office? Right. There are all kinds of politics, and then there's a, and then you can have it almost backgrounded in a poem. You can, yeah, you know, there are all different ways, and again, lots of, um, beside, and you mentioned New Yorkeran because another way in which poets are supported in, in um, by support, not just you know being heard having their poems heard is by giving readings or performances of their work and that's another um, uh, there's a set of people who are running regular reading series around uh, any uh, around the country in any city and um, in suburbia to libraries cafes bars um, universities Literary centers and and those people are also flexible uh, in in who they present present and and it's up to the audiences just as it's up to the readers to help determine uh, who who should be um, who should continue really being heard and part of what everybody loved. Um, Gertrude Stein was because she was so different. They liked that they didn't. She didn't make the ivory tower. Certainly, ones who came after. uh,
1: But even even if she wanted, they wouldn't publish this stuff she had no. like no, a th- pile no, of later, <laughs> right. later
5: people loved her. Yeah, but yeah. even so, apparently but, in her yeah. archive at yeah. Yale,
1: there's a yeah. thousand pages of unpublished <laughs> writing. Yeah. But think how much she The poets who loved her yes, now. really. The poets who base oh, themselves the on. problem.
4: We
2: forget yes. because we, yes. you know, we, we edit yeah. when we look back at history. We yeah. forget how radical and how um, maligned she might have been in certain circles, and that's what I'm saying. But it is tricky because there are you know, you go to some open mic night, night and people are reading off um, you know, cocktail napkins and a lot of it is just awful and that could be true of a lot of slam poetry but uh, if it's a gateway drug that brings people into the art form maybe that's all that that matters, But sometimes. there are lots of
5: people who believe that, yes, mm-hmm. in performance writing, that it, it really ought to work on the page or be more about this. So, you know, there is good and bad in every well, in sure. arena, I mean, and we know that the more that we um, are immersed in our own field, there's always the good and the bad.
2: Well, the poets used to have it all. I mean, there was the Iliad, and then, you know, two millennia later, there was War and Peace, and the, the popular genre became the novel. And so a lot of questions that, that what poets struggle with is how to reach that audience uh, yeah. without, without, you know, because we don't want to say what, what reaches a bigger audience is better or that what's m- even what's, uh, what's more moral is better. I mean, that seems desirable, but, uh, you know, maybe that's not possible. Maybe there could be, um, you know, just because it's well-meaning uh, doesn't always mean that it works as great art. But... Um, that there is that challenge to try to reach out and at the same time preserve a certain amount of um, integrity. Um, and I think, I don't know, maybe I'm just re-associating. What do you, what do you think? Um, um, so, uh, but um, on, at the same time, I think these avant-garde movements, even when they're a little bit rough around the edges, um, often have much more to them than people recognize at the time. Yes. So yes. people might have looked at Gertrude yes. Stein and thought it was just dreck. I mean... Um, uh, and now I think a lot of people uh, reject a lot of work because they think that it's not formal enough for them Or, but they also reject it because they think the opposite. You know, maybe it's too ivory tower. So I think everything has to be taken on its own terms.
4: I'm not sure the ivory tower in that sense really exists anymore. I know exactly what you're talking about. But that's what I meant by the gatekeepers are gone. And that has also to do with the way MFA programs have moved into the universities. Mm -hmm. It's a feedback loop both ways.
2: Mm -hmm. But isn't that a kind of gatekeeper system? Because there are all these programs where people are taught to write a certain way. Mm -hmm. They can't start with the spoken word the way writers of the Iliad did, and then move on to something else. They have to start writing short poems that follow certain criteria. I, I don't
4: really- I think that's true about MFA programs. I think they get a bad rap. I think it just depends who's teaching them. I understand what you yeah. mean. It does put a certain constraint around what's happening. You know, the um, the common thought about MFA programs is they're just producing a lot of people who are writing perfectly crafted poems, all of them a, a muchness and nothing really exciting. But you know, in any age there's only ever been a couple of people who were any good and would last. All you have to do is look at the 16th century when the sonnet comes along. I unfortunately have looked at these. There are hundreds of these utterly forgettable sonnet sequences that were extremely popular in their own day. And I think that's the equivalent of what's happening now. You know, we don't know till 50 or 100 years who the people are going to be that people will still be reading. We can't tell that now. But I think they're there... Um, I don't, and I don't, I don't see formal academic rejection the way there used to be. There certainly was, where you wouldn't let certain things in, and you wouldn't look. Just let the curriculum alone. If you look at it's well, broadened uh, in a certain way that.
2: I don't know. Oh, m- yeah, I can think of a large number of poets, though, that talk a lot about how much rejection they're getting and, yes. and, and so forth. So but, it's not as if um, there is. I mean, there are certain rules you're supposed to follow. Um, think even about poetry what books. What if you tried <laughs> to write a poetry book that you didn't put any blurbs on it and there was nothing on the cover? This would affect its reception. That's so if. there are yes,
6: certain... That's, that's definitely... Yes. Profesh- yes.
4: That's the professionalization yes. At the it. same
6: time, I think Rupi, Rupi Kaur, to go back to her, yeah. she published herself. I think she self-published, and then it sold so many copies on Amazon, yes. and then a big press latched onto her. And that's right. what's happening but doesn't and, and, yes. And, yeah. yes. So yes. But I, I think I do, I, I do agree with you that yeah. the MFA is really powerful uh, right now. The, the desire to write yeah. poetry and publish a poet feeling incumbent to enroll in the MFA. And unfortunately, most MFA programs only admit 10 people per year. So that's there is mm-hmm. gatekeeping that's happening, and... Who gets to teach in these programs yeah. it's sort of like connect the dots and the the template for poetry that in the MFA programs is adopted is still the traditional lyric narrative poem right, which is a long yes. tradition mind you yes. so yes. but and so if you are writing left of center if you are exploring performance poetry right you're there are programs that would yeah, would, oh, would mm-hmm. accept you but you have to do a little bit of research, and perhaps the great equalizer, or the great Satan, depending on who you ask, is, is the internet, where yes. you're, benef- as a reader, I think you're at a very very golden age for mm-hmm. experiencing so many different types of poems and poets, more so than ever before. Right, that's my uh, democratic- and to your point,
4: that's it. There's another way now. Yeah. It's another instance of gatekeeping, gates falling down. No yeah. gatekeepers there. On, onto the net. To go to performance poetry for a minute, because that's so important. I mean, poetry began, obviously, in the oral yes. tradition. Yes. There are no cultures ever been without poetry. And really, until very recently, there were still cultures like in Yugoslavia, when people wanted to know about Homer. They sent somebody to Yugoslavia where they were still repeating epics orally, the tradition. It's gone now, but only the last, like, 40 years something like that. But here's the thing about performance poetry. It's I agree with Amy. there is no kind of poetry that doesn't yield, I think we all agree with this really good instances of what it is. It's not the kind of thing you're doing. it's how well are you doing it. So for performance poetry, uh, the question is if you want to translate it, you may take the position that you don't want to translate it to the printed page. You are only about the spoken word. But if you want to translate it, then you have to put it on the printed page so that a reader who is unaccompanied by you reading it will hear what it ought to sound like, which I think a number of performance poets are able to do to make that transition from one to the other.
5: Because there's also a lot of publishers publishing, you know, a lot of yes. performance poets who want to be published in book form. Yes. Um, so it's not just that they they want to remain in the public in the. In no, the no, no, I'm saying that. Yes, yeah. no, I, yes, yes, I'm 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 right, going so. along with that, and. Uh, yeah. So well, yeah, you know, my... so
2: it is hard to regain the oral tradition, but this might be one way in which we're reminded of it, and um, uh, that certain groups of poets are are, are keeping the uh, the eye on what poems sound like when they are read out loud. Or, um, and I think that really, uh, for a poem to be worth its salt, it has to. It has to sound right. Um, yes?
4: And Amy brought up readings, which is a good thing. Readings have proliferated. It's another way of disseminating it. And I've noticed just from when I used to go to readings when I was a lot younger, po- poets read terribly. Yeah. It, they were almost embarrassed to be reading as if it were something that took away from the sacredness of the page, so they would read in a certain poetry voice. Do you yes, remember that, anybody? Yes, which yes, was overinflated and portentous. I opened the door to the (laughs) twilight sort of thing. unbearable. There's been a feedback loop where poets read much better. They write differently because they're reading to audiences. You know what works when you're reading a poem. My poems got a lot better when I started doing a lot of reading Mm -hmm. because I understood what worked, not just on a page in reading. So I I would want to add that. Yes. I
6: want to say that I actually disagree. I think the oral tradition has never been more popular. In fact, I'd say yeah. the most popular po- poetry is, has never been more popular if we are going to keep an open mind and accept hip-hop and rap as poetry. Oh, that's what I'm poetry. saying. Yeah. Sure. And, right, it's because of hip-hop and rap that we see Complete tremendous liberty. diversity in terms of, of young people who yes. are taking a chance at expressing themselves and instinctively going to the poem. But it's actually not instinctively because they've grown up listening yeah. To this very old tradition of poetry, of oral poetry, which is, and rappers are the great, great poets of our age. I know, I, uh, I agree just, with that. They're just not yeah. straight white males, right? yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Except for yeah. Eminem. Yeah. I, I'm
4: not sure what made you think I was disagreeing with that. I'm saying the opposite, that readings are one of the most important ways that the oral stuff is disseminated, and I also would want to say, if you look at a poem, I hope people go and read a lot of poems. If you go look at a poem, it's ego that gets in the way when you're a grown up. When you're a kid, you hear something. Think about the way kids parody a poem, you know. Uh, we Remember, um, light a match and watch, it burn, watch the schoolhouse burn to ashes, la 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 sort of thing, they just look at a poem and they don't feel that they're challenged to understand it. And if you go back as an adult and you just read a poem, the best way to pick up your point, Paolo, is just read it aloud and listen to yourself. Yes. And if you do that a couple times, you will understand what that poem means. It will, it will come into you. Because that's where it
2: is, yeah. But one thing about rap is that it is performed with uh, instrumentation or with mm-hmm. singing voices, and I think that it also has a lot more followers than poetry. I mean, we're talking the, m- you know, the, not just a, I mean, I should say it's, it's unheard of to sell a million poetry books, but to sell uh, rap music to, uh, for an album, for a song mm-hmm. to go platinum, it's no big deal, really. Um, so, mm-hmm. the question the poets are always asking themselves is how especially in this day and age where there are some poets just um, like conceptual poets that are uh, using appropriated material and there is no political meaning to what they're doing. It's not about social engagement. And right next to that we've got other writers um, I think, uh, Powell mentioned the diversity of poetry today, I mean, I, I mentioned the Harlem Renaissance, we can draw a line from there to the black arts movement of Brooks and Baraka, and how activist they were in their time, and um, uh, but, you know, if you go to say Ross, you know, uh, I don't know, Ross Gay's poem on, on Eric Garner, even if he makes an important statement or a sensitive statement about that, who will really see that, how, except other poets. And so um, it's a question we have to ask. Is there a way um, that poets can reach out, especially this time where so many poets want to be activists? And I don't know if we really have a a platform for doing that because poetry requires that one not-write propaganda, that every line has Mm -hmm. to be... Um, its own, uh, has to undercut itself on so many levels. When I hear politicians use lines out of poetry, they almost invariably <laughs> use them incorrectly or d- demonstrate they don't understand the work. But I think right now it's a very challenging time for the, the poets who want to be socially engaged and uh, uh, want to, uh, you know, convey their responsibility to make a
6: difference. Go ahead. Yes. I, I actually don't think so. I think um, poets have always been the first to respond with language in response situations. It's just in our culture in the United States, we don't really care as much about poets giving voice to what we're experiencing compared to Mexico, compared to South America, where poets actually have a voice in terms of expressing what's going on in current events. I would argue that a lot of publishers right now, when they're publishing poets, they want to look for poets who are engaged.
4: Now
6: they right? do. Yeah. Well, but but <laughs> let's go back to nine eleven, which is not that long ago. How did people grieve? You know, Most people poetry. who don't really write poetry, their first instinct was to write a poem. When I went to Union Square, so many poems. Angel Island, right? The immigrants are denied immigration. The Chinese are non-European uh, Americans. I mean, they wrote poems instinctively. I just think that, you know, it's... Now seems to be there's greater agency for for you to be a poet who is socially engaged. Combination of social media, combination of the visibility of poetry, um, and combination of I mean hip hop, right? Hip hop, rap has always been about what's going on. In in social realm, right? So it seems that you also,
2: for a moment, talked about poetry as therapy,
6: which was because it goes back to what I
2: said about Sexton. Yeah. But it's interesting. Um, uh, On the other hand, I'm not sure that that always works because poetry and psychology is a very big theme. But um, for instance, Franz Wright, when when his father James Wright found out that he had become a poet, (laughs) uh, he said to his son, "Welcome to hell." (laughs) Um, And I I mean, I I like the saying that a um, I like to say that a, a sad poet is a happy poet, um, but really it is, a, um, uh, whether poetry really works as, uh, you know, as a way to grieve, um, it, it seems like it should be cathartic, but it also can, um, can uh, become an obsession or a dark obsession of sorts, and I don't know.
4: It's about transformation, though, yes. of yes. what's dark. That's the yes. difference, transformation yes. through language. It's like opera, you ask yourself, why is this pleasurable? They're all death. <laughs> <laughs> or Shakespeare tragedy, but it is. And because it's been transformed through the yes. art.
2: So yes. A terrible beauty yes. is born.
4: Well, yes. you know, the, well, yes. yes, but the other thing is, you know, we're talking about terms of reaching people, which is important, and all of us who love poetry would like poems to reach more people but they may never and when you think about it in absolute numbers there're probably because there are so many people alive <laughs> the tiny percentage here that are reading it or interested in it probably are more than people who have ever lived at any other time and it does it ever have to be just about rap um you're bringing that up cuz i grew up in new york and they are street rhythms <laughs> yeah. and i was so struck by that i just saw hamilton and this is the thing oh when it when? was completely, it? completely it wasn't a gimmick. It was so appropriate because I loved the Ameri- it. that's what I mean by American poetry's finally come into its own in this century, partly through those responses. Because our revolution was a thrusting upward from the ground up and the city up of these energies that couldn't be contained. And that's what you hear in rap and hip hop. And it's wonderful because the second act of that is a real, really very sad act. <laughs> it's devolved from that into politics as usual. But there it is. That,
6: Should we it's open it up? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, does anyone have any questions? Good. I think the microphone works. If yeah.
5: you I think I have a loud speaking voice. <laughs> <laughs> OK. The people behind you won't hear you. Yeah. <laughs>
7: Um, I'm a singer, and um, I live in an artist's building on the west side, and we have a group of people who have met for more than ten years every other week uh, who get together and read poetry. We read what we've written. We read whatever interests us, and we always discuss it in terms of uh, what can we know about the poet, what was going on at that time, and... um, it's just been extraordinarily valuable for us as a venue, for us to find out what's universal, where we are in our growth in 10 years. We have people in their 90s, two people in their 90s, one, two people in their 70s, people in their 60s, people in their 30s, we have about eight people yeah. that show up for this thing. And uh, the growth that we've all had by reading aloud every week, and we read poems more than once, and ask, and we're not erudite. We say, "I don't know what this means. What do you think this?" No one's trying to be crazy about their um, ego with it. It's mm-hmm. we're really there for an exploration, and I think it's the universal, and necessary uh, expression for for us to uh, experience intimacy through 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 writing, and. Uh, I think it's very exciting that the written word is um, happening on the internet. Um, I have a young niece in rural Massachusetts who listens, to, who reads a Ruby Carr, and she's a young woman finding out about her own voice mm-hmm. as a woman. And here's here's a great venue for her. And this is a kid who would never be exposed to poetry. So I think there's a lot of hope about what's going on, and I'm very happy to have listened.
3: So, So there are more
2: avenues for people to share their work, and for published work to be accessible for longer to a greater number of people. There are a lot of advantages to the online presence of poetry.
4: And as Amy points out... Even though
2: there are downsides, of course, yes. And
4: and Amy's pointing out, those aren't only journals you can read, and for those of you who write, those are the journals you can send to. (laughs) And many of
2: them are webzines, like the one I mentioned (laughs) had a .org at the end, and so, yes.
3: Thank you. I was very interested to hear you talk about the pleasure and the pain in poetry. Mm. How much is known about the neurobiology of poetry? Uh, particularly in the developing brain and in the deteriorating brain. Uh, how much do we understand in, the, in this area? Young children, uh, people with neurodegenerative disease.
2: Well, we do know that, I'm, I have very limited knowledge about this, but I do know that play makes a difference. At both ends of that—that that it's very important for people to engage and in play, not necessarily to worry about what they need to get done—or and uh, <laughs> poetry provides that. It is a it is a lifesaver for a lot of people who engage in that art. I think.
4: Well, I want to give two personal anecdotes about that. One is my publisher, one of the fellow poets in the list, uh, had a book. Out that was a really fine book of poems but she was losing her mind and she was unable to function in any other way. I don't know what this says about poets. It was a terrific book. And the second experience I had was in a public school in Queens. In April, the Poetry Society asked, some of you have done it, I'm sure, poets to go into the public schools and teach a few classes. Yeah. So I was teaching 6th, 7th and 8th grade which was a first and the 6th graders were incredibly good. They had an instinctive sense of aesthetics, which is what may survive, as in my colleague who were nothing much else survived mentally. Uh, They were wonderful. They were moving. My husband Roy came along with me. He was struck by the same thing. At the end of it, the principal was debriefing, and I said, well, I take it the sixth grade was your advanced class, and she said, no, they were our special needs kids. Mm. They were so far ahead of the other two classes, so mm. you were probably the scientist and doctor. I leave that to you to figure out what that means <laughs> there.
2: but I don't know if the study has been done about the effect on you know the synapses or if someone's been hooked up to a bunch of uh, sensors we, and then no. reads a poem and what we, what parts of the brain I, light up there,
5: there was a I, I can't i i didn't. End up getting very far into reading it, I put it off. But there was a book called the, *The Midnight Disease*, written by a neurologist who was also a writer, trying to evaluate the brain, and 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 she referenced um, more than just poets. But that that perhaps that's the contains something of the answer.
1: Mm. Um. I guess you could ask the question about creativity in general. It doesn't have to be just language. I mean, some people like um, de Kooning, the painter. Um, I think he has Alzheimer's or some form of dementia. And I think he went right on painting good paintings to the end. They may have been affected by what happened to his brain, but he was still a great painter. Um, Things like that are interesting, but I don't think we, we really know.
0: I I um don't have anything to say about that question specifically, although I suppose I should. I'm a neuropsychiatrist. But um because there's not that much research I think done on that that particular topic, but in general, I was interested in the comparing languages that's used in let's say prose where and we Patricia you touched on this a little bit uh, at one point, where you know the, the meaning of the message is sort of intended. And anyway the writer intends to intend it. <laughs> they intend to make the meaning clear. They don't always, it sometimes spills out over, You know, they have messages they didn't intend to create, but that's the point of prose. And then in poetry, it seems there's an interest in pushing past, gushing past the limits of what the words are actually meaning on the surface. There's that sort of pushing past. I thought that's really interesting, and it raises two questions. One relates to this gentleman's question. So play, playing is a little bit of, you know we know animals play, right we know that uh they they are rehearsing uh, physical programs so they learn how to hunt and move in a certain way but they do exceed whatever it's improvisational so they're not they're not practicing like someone might practice uh playing the piano where you feel you need to meet especially if it's classical let's say where you're trying to meet the particular notes they're moving around but they're also exceeding they're, they're in, being inventive and improvisational and that's what play involves is sort of pushing past whatever the sort of the, the, the sheer formal aspect of what the brain seems to be doing so um, so that's, uh, that's one important thing but the other was to bring up the question about poetry as being uh, um, changing over time as being an evolution of the constraints on poetry and I thought that would be an interesting topic to just touch on briefly because mm. we talked about constraints like Twitter, uh, so many letters can be allowed, and other constraints whether it's professionalized capitalized, whateverized that's another interesting way of looking at what's happened with poetry
2: well, I think poetry does require, uh, for a poet to write a poem, certain restraints are required, even if they're arbitrary, so it's helpful when writing a sonnet to know what the rules are, and then one can decide when to follow them, when not to. The same would be true, if I, I would assume, if one's writing on Twitter, one has a certain number of characters, and that might actually inspire creativity, but without some constraints, we know... Poets like Emily Dickinson gave, gave themselves their own strange constraints and they invented their own rules. And I think all of us do that to a certain degree. Um, and yes, uh, play, I think the play starts very young. I think, um, I remember being just a, a child and loving the word hippopotamus and wanting to say it over and over. Or sewing yes. machine, which yes. sometimes yes. came out as mash, yes. mass wing shine or whatever. But yeah. uh, you, 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 a lot of people start off as little Gertrude Steins before they, they lose... Uh, before they forget, you know, the the wonder that that is possible in the discovery of of language, Uh, whereas poets are always trying to discover, and yes. Um, And I do do think
4: constraints are at the center of everything that poets do and poetry does. Obviously, in a traditional form, somebody gives it to you, but I think all of us and people I know, I teach a workshop um, of actually awfully good poets and they, what we're doing is setting ourselves our own constraints. We're learning how to give ourselves our own assignments and set a constraint and it develops maybe as you write a poem but the constraint is what makes the poem I yes. think.
6: I wanted to uh, add to that uh, you have um, poets who are actually responding to these developments in terms of uh, the new platforms that we're writing in poetry you've got Tommy Pico Morgan Parker I mentioned to you Morgan Parker uh, has one book out. Tommy Pico has two books out. Tommy Pico is a First Nations Native American poet, queer, came out with a book called IRL, which is an internet term. Uh, so he's actually embracing the language that he experiences daily, right, in real time on the internet. And that's actually changing how, maybe not consciously, but he's allowing it to enter into his poem. He wrote a book called, uh, it's, on, it's based on... Um, Uh, the pastoral, but it's also like an anti-pastoral because he uses a lot of language that you don't typically consider would be pastoral worthy. You find on blogs, you find on Twitter, Um, and he's very self-aware when he's writing this long poem on nature, thinking about the pastoral. Then go back 10 years ago, you had Ton Lin, who teaches out of New Jersey. He came up with a a conceptual poet. He came up with the idea of poetry is boredom, and boredom yes. as actually being a pleasurable thing so he published this true. book called Blip So One which is fantastic and when you're reading his work language is scattered all across the page like My Army. and he doesn't expect you to read it read it like treat it ambient he calls it ambient stylistics why can't you uh, engage in poetry like you do music you can do three chores at once while listening to Tchaikovsky and still appreciate Tchaikovsky why can't it'd be the same thing for poetry.
2: So, uh, But I understand it's, if it's yeah. the poetry of boredom, you're not even necessarily required to read the poem when you read it. You can skip well, around. Or,
6: yeah, well, you're, you are I mean, reading it but, it, but you've got, you've got three senses, right? You've got sight, sound, and then meaning. Yes. So yes. you can look at the words, and if you look at his book, he's playing around with typeface, and uh, but you don't have to read the whole poem. It's impossible. It's 300 pages long. But you can re- read bits of it and then sip your coffee, go water the plants, take the dog out for a walk, <laughs> go back to it, and appreciate it like an, as an ambient experience. But it's on the page, right? And so, you know, and that's, I think, a response to this oral and visual environment that we were finding ourselves immersed in 10 years ago, before the success of YouTube, right? We're now, like, you're... Have eight windows open on the internet, and you're reading the Times. So, i had been talking
2: to Anne Marie too. That there's something called uh, called visual poetry, which is really a, a branch of concrete poetry where you arrange the words on the page to represent what the what your subject matter. So, I mean, it actually has a long history. But uh, Anne Marie had an example of a poem about a dog shaped like a dog. There's one older one by E. Cummings called Grasshopper, where the, word, the letters of the grasshopper jump across the page. So it might seem a little gimmicky, but this goes all the way back to Robert Herrick and uh, Herbert's Easter Wings and so forth. There's a long mm-hmm. tradition of representing po- the words visually. That said, when there was this, because you mentioned Mallarmé, when there was an, a discussion between Mallor- Mallarmé and Edver- Edgar Degas. And, Degas said, you know, I've been painting so much, I would love to write poetry, I have so many ideas. And Mallarmé said to him, my dear Degas, poems are not made out of ideas, poems are made out of words. So, <laughs> but then if you can arrange the words in pictures, maybe poems are made out of images. Um, I mean, images in two senses of the word. Go on, yes.
3: I think a boredom is a kind of uh, repressed anxiety, so if it can be transformed into pleasure, that's very interesting. (laughs) uh, I have a question. Uh, Among a number of things I've been puzzling over in the course of your presentations, uh, one in particular, and that is, um, well, wider and wider dissemination through more and more channels and venues, um, engagement in social and political activity, performance, in a number of ways, uh, all and even intimacy, all phenomena of the present moment. And uh, at the same time, Patricia, you were mentioned at least twice, maybe three times, the, the notion that only a handful of poems, perhaps in any given era, tend to last, to endure. And um, I'm wondering about the sort of dialectic between these two things because for example if you read uh, as I tend to do a lot of poetry reviews uh, you often hear the phrase so and so is the greatest poet writing in English at the present time or so and so is the greatest American poet of the end of the 20th century um, now if that's more than a blurb uh, to move books at, at Farrer, Strauss, or Norton Um, in these reviews. Mm. What what Mm. does that have to do with this more and more what seems like democratization of poetry, huge diversity of poetry, and then what does what's the meaning of the greatest poet writing in whatever language? Um, There's a clash there that I can't quite recognize. You
4: may well wonder about that. Listening to you, I'm thinking, if we just collected all the blurbs on the back of poetry books. But here's the real situation, as opposed to um, uh, even 20 years ago, maybe. Uh, you would ask a list of people interested in poetry, well, give me a list of the 10 most important poets writing now. And most of the na- there'd be a lot of overlap. If you did that now with even 10 or 20 mm-hmm. names, there might be no overlap, or maybe yeah. two or three names. I don't, I don't think there's exactly a contradiction in what you're saying. I think it's, again, the winnowing effects of time. I think reading the blurbs could skew that in your mind. I think the best things reviewers can do, I really think most poetry reviews... First of all, there are hardly any, which is really sad. And secondly, uh, the best of them don't really talk that much about poetry. They'll give you enough of a selection from the book under review so you can judge for yourself what you think of this book. But most of them don't, as you've probably realized. Uh, They'll talk about it. I don't know if that answers your question.
2: Well, the point is it is a subjective claim, no matter how we look at it. If someone says this is the greatest writer, the greatest writer according to whom... And in uh, by according to what standards? What is the and and I think um, that's the place to start. Um, uh, Herrick who I, I mentioned, um, you know, uh, has worked in visual forms. He, the reception of poets can be so odd. He was slightly, he was completely unknown during his time and then was discovered, which is, you know, centuries ago, and then was discovered in the 19th century. So, that's a really odd one. Sometimes people die and then they become really big after that, like Emily Dickinson. But here's someone who just lay underground for centuries. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there's every kind, of, and others who, uh, who, like Oscar Wilde, who did write some poems, very popular in his time, very popular afterwards. It's very hard to know.
5: We can't know, actually. Well, and I think that it's important that you have... You, there are going to be those the, those who last through time. But in the meantime, we're living now. And it's who we are interested in yes. as individuals. <laughs> and, that's, and that's important. It's important to living life who we, who oh. we are interested in seeing and watching and... Um, in any reading, everything, who we are, this is now. And these are various, uh, you know, any, any used bookstore in a small town will make you sad because you'll come across books that were published by major <laughs> publishing houses and you don't know who these people are. So,
3: so um, greatest can only be temporal, really. Yeah, and and the, if you know, yes, the, if you know yes. the future, you don't have one. Anyway, <laughs>
4: well, It's like oh, yes. the yes. fact of every strong poet being a school of one But every reader is also a school of one And I think what Amy's saying is just look at what appeals to you yeah. Yeah. That's the only
3: important right. and thing The word greatest is a superlative which means it can only be one And if many, many people are saying so-and-so is the greatest Then it can only mean I like this or it speaks to me
4: I yes. think great yes. should yes. be a word, um, there should be a list of little words you can't use in poetry reviews, yes. <laughs> and great yes. would certainly be one of them. It says absolutely nothing. But, you know, I think, I think you, do yeah.
6: touch, you touch on the connection to capital in that mm. statement, right? Like you talk about the industry. And you can't ignore thinking about great and greatest, because every year we've got a, every month we have a new award that is going to somebody, which requires qualifications and all that, yeah. We
3: we need to combine greatest and scarcity. Scarcity. (laughs)
6: Scarcity.
4: American, American blurbs are especially hyperbolic actually. If you would just compare American blurbs to Irish blurbs or English blurbs or others in the poetry speaking world, it's pretty striking. (laughs)
2: Look at a list of who won Pulitzer Prizes or something all the way back in fiction and poetry. You'll see a lot of names that that nobody knows (gasps) and writers that nobody reads anymore. It's astounding, right? And that's a relatively new prize, the Pulitzer Prize. If there were something that that went back to over thousands of years, we can only imagine what would be on that list. So...
3: Robert Bridges did write at least one great poem, Eros Theranos. I think no, no, that that's, actually... That's you uh, Eros, the one that oh, begins.
4: Eros, tyrannus. Yeah, but I, I believe that is Bridges. That's, that's, that's yeah, yeah. That's Robinson. Yeah. No, no, a great poem. That's. There's an example of just a great era. poem. Whatever else he <laughs> wrote, oh, one. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all you
1: need to do.
4: No, Robinson. No, Robinson. <laughs> Robinson. Listen, I, I'm Bro told. I'm more.
1: told that we need to wrap up. I am <laughs> really glad to have yeah. to stop things. Gla- it means everyone's yeah. so, yeah. so right. interested.
3: Thank you very much.